Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Euronurse. I'm your host, Vic Sinise. If you're joining us on YouTube, LinkedIn, or Facebook, welcome to the show. Hey, for those uh, YouTube subscribers out there, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And hey, even if you're not on YouTube, go ahead, go and visit our website and click on our YouTube page. It'll take you over to our YouTube page where you can subscribe to the show. I'm trying to get myself up to that $1,000, 1000 $1, viewers or subscriber mark. So help me out with that, would you? This is your first time checking out the show. Be sure to go to and visit our website at Euronurse.com where you can learn more about the show. It's also the very best place to go to watch all of our past episodes. And hey, we got 65 of those episodes for you to watch. Also, if you want to listen to us in your car, you can go to our Euro Nurse Plus section where you can listen to our, our, our audio podcast from any of your favorite formats. We're helping out SUNA here. So if you're an RN and you're a SUNA member, go to our website and click on this uh, QR code or scan it with your phone and fill out that workplace role and compensation survey. They want to get as much information as they can. I think it'll be helpful for everyone. And uh, it only takes about less than five minutes. I've already filled mine out. Also, if you're not getting the newsletter, go to our website and fill in your information and get the newsletter. It comes out every Monday, all the information there is to know about the show. And if you're watching us on any format, you can always ask a question through our comment box. Glad to listen to any questions you have. Hey, it is Nurses and Associate Urology Week. So getting towards the tail end of it, but. Congratulations to all of you. And this week, we're glad to have Dr. Wayne Quang joining us. And he's going to be talking about a great subject, defending the detrusor. So let's go ahead and meet all of our experts right now. We'll bring them into view here. Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to Good have morning. everyone on board. Morning. Um, as we always tend to do, we do our own introductions and a favorite fact or interesting fact or story. Um, again, my name is Vic Sinise. I'm the host of the show. I've been involved in urology for 40 years, and I am the one who came up with the idea and glad to meet everybody at the SUNA meeting last week. All the fans that came up to me, it was kind of cool to hear from you and see you live instead of just a number on the screen. So, hey, welcome, everybody. Now, my interesting fact is... Da -da -da -da. Chicago Metro, after the meeting, after we got off of the, the live episode, we went to the next meeting and we were presented with a trophy for chapter of the year. That's a coveted trophy and we're glad to have it. So I'm sure Euronurse had a lot to do with the Chicago Metro chapter being able to score that. So congratulations. We got two members, three members of the Chicago Metro chapter on this episode too. So congratulations. All right, let's bring Andrea in for your introduction. Hi, good morning. My name is Andrea Strong. I'm a urology nurse practitioner. I've also worked as a urology nurse for quite a while since 2010, even a little bit before that in 2009 when I was a nursing assistant. I am also the educational director for the Chicago Metro chapter. And I was recently elected to the national board for SUNA, um, which started this last meeting for our national SUNA conference. It was really fun. And then one fun fact is that I had the honor of hearing Vic sing karaoke at the <laughs> fundraiser event. And he is an excellent singer. In fact, SUNA has a lot of really great singers. I did not know that because earlier in the day, everyone said, hey, aren't you going to sing, you know, karaoke? Well, I am not a singer, not at all, <laughs> not even a little bit. I said, yeah, sure, I'll sing a Disney song or something. Well, then I got cold feet and backed out when I realized how great a singer Suna has, but Vic did an amazing <laughs> job. It was so fun. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. Hey, Jan, go ahead and introduce yourself. Good morning. I'm a private practice urologist in Gilbert, which is a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona. And what I'm doing is by I'm paying it forward, basically, by sharing my experience in the business and clinical aspects of medicine to benefit my colleagues. And one of the ways that I'm doing so is by creating the Thriving Urology Practice Facebook group. We're currently close to 2,400 US-based urology practice folks collaborate to improve our practices and it's all for free. The story I have today is, well, as soon as I'm done with this webinar, 
I am taking my eight-year-old car to the dealership for checkup, if you will, or oil change. And the reason I know that I needed something done was because the check engine lights came on. Well, humans don't have check engine lights, but we do have we do experience symptoms. And also, when you go to your primary, if you go to your primary care doctor, when you go to your primary care doctor, it's kind of like your routine checkup. You may not have check engine lights, but some of the labs and then the studies that are done to make sure that you are maintaining at peak performance is done at these checkups. I encourage everyone to do so because that's the, maybe the only clue that you get that there's something else going on. Sometimes you don't feel it, but it's a good thing to do for preventive, preventative maintenance. Back to you, Vic. Yeah, great. I always consider the PSA a check engine light. Because it can go on and there's nothing really wrong with the car, but you should get it checked out, as you said. Hey, Lori, welcome to the show. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lori Atkinson. I'm a certified urology registered nurse. I've been in urology for 25 years. I currently work for Northwestern Medicine in Geneva and uh, Winfield, Illinois. Um, a lot of people don't know, but before I became a nurse, I was actually an ophthalmic assistant, um, certified ophthalmic assistant for 10 years. And so I guess you could say that I went from two eyes to working with the one-eyed snake. <laughs> <laughs> Always a great it. story. <laughs> All right. And our guest uh, speaker, guest panelist today, Wayne, go ahead and introduce yourself and we'll get on with the show. I'm Dr. Wayne Kwong. I'm in solo private practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right next door to John Lynn. And here I work at MD for Men, which I started back in 2014, where we empower our men with the guest experience to evolve fearlessly into the best version of themselves to positively impact their personal, professional community and global relationships. And together today, there's so many great segues in here where we really focus on that aspect of men's health, their bladder health in regards to the villainous prostate, that constricting evil of the prostate. And so together, what we'd like to do is maybe just walk us through what we have started, which is the man versus prostate crusade, where together we are saving more bladders. And so Vic, with that, I guess if you can throw up my slides, that would be fantastic. There I'm going to save my story or fun fact towards the end, because I want to make sure we get through these slides, which are so important to our crusade. I might use terms like provider practice or patient, but really in truth, it's so much more than that. Providers are far beyond just the community urologist. There's also primary care, the physician assistants, the nurse practitioners, as well as the academics. And then the practice of medicine, it's not just the C-suite executives, it's the nurses. Once again, we thank you during this nursing appreciation week, the medical assistants, check in, check out the revenue cycle, as well as the healthcare industry representatives who help us in the operating room, get the proper devices and diagnostic tools to all of our patients. And as well as when we talk about patients, it's not just the guys who are challenged with BPH, but their partners, their family, their colleagues, and even their pets who don't have to be disturbed with their sleep when the man is having to go pee multiple times in the middle of the night. Quick disclosures, I am a paid consultant for Olympus. I was a paid consultant for Neotract uh, and part of their faculty and um, used to speak for SRS Medical for non-invasive pressure flow studies. So with that, let's talk a little bit about that engine that John Lynn's talking about, the engine within us, the bladder, that pump, and how do we begin to optimize it? And so my objective today is to share with you our collective effort to optimize peak performance, to be effective doing the right thing, to be efficient, doing things right. And my promise to use that together as defenders of the detrusor with our cystoscopic swords and our pressure flow shields, that we can accelerate the change away from a drug-first approach to a bladder-centric paradigm for BPH care. And by so doing, we have to first prioritize the preservation of bladder health. And by so doing, we can put an end to the polypharmacy epidemic when we accept the fact that medications are simply a temporizing measure and we can prevent late stage BPH. We can prevent those problems with the engine of the car, just like John Lynn's gonna try and check out today by prioritizing bladder health counseling 
and a bladder health baseline for all BPH patients. And so with that, we look into the past. In the 1980s, we saw the emergence of a drug-first traditional care pathway. We tip our hat to LinkedIn defender Craig Solid, upon which we use this care pathway concept. There are three phases. There's the pre-treatment phase, the treatment phase, which we talk a lot about as urologists, as well as the post-treatment phase, where we get to celebrate our successes and we get to navigate our failures. Back in the 1980s, we had very limited treatment options, whether it was simple prostatectomy, TERP, but at that time, medications, drugs, held the position at the front of the line. They were first-line therapy. And now, over time, we've developed guidelines. The AUA guidelines currently tell us and submit that to be effective is to manage symptoms. To be efficient is to follow the protocol that defaults men to standard treatment that starts with a trial of medical therapy, after which, and only after then, do we then consider surgical therapy. What makes urology great in this whole village, this whole tribe of defenders of the truser, is that we apply systems thinking. We like to use the levers of Archimedes, right, to move the world of BPH. And today, let's grab a hold of the first level at the very high level of level three. Let's look, of our, look at our goals. And those goals, we've reframed them as the elements of efficiency. When we look at the BPH care pathway, this BPH system, we want to be looking at the durability of treatments with a favorable benefit to risk profile. We want to look at economic sustainability, right? As defender Dr. Kaplan says, the science of money has to make sense. And then we want to respect, honor, and hold close to us a man's vitality. How do we restore it? How do we optimize it? How do we make sure that a man has his physical health, emotional health, intellectual, spiritual, sexual, professional, and financial health? And finally, which we will talk more about, is the window of curability. This element is really important in the pre-treatment phase. When we look at the decision-making process for how do we determine the proper timing of deobstruction to maximize the preservation of detrusor function or bladder health. We are very lucky. For the listeners out there, there's a quote here. If I've seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And today, we are grateful for the academic urologic giants that have afforded us to have this working equation of efficiency, where there is a positive correlation between efficiency and increasing vitality, increasing durability, increasing the preservation of bladder health. And there's a negative correlation with rising costs. We're also grateful that urology has now gifted all of us with this tremendous treatment landscape for BPH. We now have a comprehensive set of surgical tools in our tool belt, ranging from the most invasive, like robotic prostatectomy, the invasive surgical therapies like electric surgical, lasers, enucleation, aquablation, as well as minimally invasive surgical therapies like Urolift and Resume, as well as least invasive surgical therapies like now ITIND. And the new player on the block is now Optilum. On this treatment landscape, though, the very first position continues to be occupied by BPH medications. But for now, this is a new pathway, and it is improved with all these surgical advances and technological advances we have for diagnostics and for uh, deobstruction. And we're also grateful for the whole host of research that's been performed this is a slide for you listeners where we looked at all the AUA Chicago abstracts from 2023, and we saw that so many of these abstracts shine light in all the nooks and crannies of these four elements of efficiency. Interestingly, there is one area that may need some illumination, and that is in the area where the window of curability meets a man's vitality in that pre-treatment phase in the decision-making process, how do we optimize the efficiency of making the right decision at the right time to deobstruct? And this really came to light when we saw at the plenary session in Chicago and AUA, we tip our hat to defender Lori Lerner, who really shined light on the treatment phase 
and the post-treatment phase. For this index case patient, a 70-year-old with an IPSS of 22, a prostate that is 60 grams, who was placed on medications. And we told ourselves, we are being effective. We are managing symptoms. We are being efficient. We are following the protocol and starting this guy on medications, alpha blockers in this case. But yet, somehow, despite all of that, this guy slipped through the cracks as we stood guard as defenders of the detrusor on the ramparts. We let this guy, this bladder slip past us. This is an example of treatment failure in the pre-treatment phase. This is pre-treatment failure. And we need to investigate this inefficiency and how the decision was made about the timing of deobstruction. We need to look carefully at where vitality and the window of curability come together. And it starts with us first recognizing that the bladder has been neglected. We need to restore it on top of the pedestal where it belongs. It is too precious. It is so amazingly complex. There are only two major organs that cannot be transplanted, the brain and the bladder. And we need to stop pushing it to the side. We need to let it come back onto the red carpet and share the limelight with the prostate. And for far too long, we've been watching bladders die or in the process of dying. And now we can see it here. There's a fantastic paper from 2020, 2020 from defenders Kaplan, Kohler, and Kausik, the 50,000 non-invasive pressure flow study. Disclosure, I did contribute my data to this data set. And we see, and we, we have all suspected, as men age, as that prostate donut hole begins to tighten, we see the flows diminish and reflexively and the bladder will now begin to increase its compensatory pressures. It has to work harder, it has to squeeze harder, and it squeezes harder and harder until it reaches a peak around the age of 62, after which the bladder begins to decompensate. And so we need to return back to first principles to address this of inefficiency in the pretreatment phase. We need to ask ourselves is what we thought to be true really true? Is it true that to be effective is to manage symptoms? Is it true to be efficient is to default men to start with a trial of medical therapy? Much work is needs to be done in this area. But we also need to first define what is the problem? What we love about the European Association of Urology's guidelines is they use the term benign prostatic obstruction, BPO. We love that term because it really underscores the relationship between the bladder pump and the obstructed plumbing. And if we can all come together and recognize that this is a mechanical plumbing problem, then let us all agree that therapy is a term that should be reserved for and assigned to mechanical solutions for this mechanical problem. Our work does not stop when we give medications that resolve or improve medications. In fact, our work has just begun. We move forward immediately to doing a careful evaluation of the obstructed plumbing and the blocked um, and the pumps. So for example, on the left, we have here, we talk about obstructed kidneys for urologists to relate to. And for patients, they can relate to coronary obstruction. And we do a careful evaluation because we want to come up with a personalized surgical treatment plan to deobstruct, prioritizing the preservation, the maximal preservation of kidney function, cardiac function. Shouldn't we do the same for bladder function or detrusor function? This concept of the window of curability and intervening at the right time has actually been around for a long time, but we as urologists, as a specialty, have not had the time or bandwidth to really devote a lot of attention to it. We've been focusing on the treatment and the post-treatment phases of BPH, but it's now time to focus on the pre-treatment phase and look at the window of curability. The concept has been around since 2003 by defender Andrea Tubero, who talked about the early treatment of BPH can reduce the risk of permanent bladder damage. And in 2060, Defender Prasice brought up the same concept, 
Do we operate too late? And then once again, in 2023, defender Klaus Robrun brought it up at a recent conference. Do we intervene too late? A central theme for this talk today as defenders of the detruser. Because we know that timing of deobstruction is very important. For the listeners out there, there's a slide up right now where if we use a criteria for the age indication for mist of 45 years of age, as well as a flow rate less than 10 cc's per second, magically, if we overlay it to the data from the 50,000 patient pressure flow study, a window of curability magically emerges. And we can now pull apart, pull aside the curtains and take a good look into that window. And we now know that the number one treatment concern in the pre-treatment phase should be the timing of deobstruction, because if we can't intervene at the right time for the right patient, for the right prostate, within that window of curability, we can do so before the onset of damage or even before the damage is irreversible. Let us accept that drugs are not a mechanical solution. They are a temporizing measure, and for right now, with our newer pathway, despite having a full complement of technologies, we still have positioned medications at the very front of the line for therapies. We have given them the title of first-line therapy, and that's not right. We need to understand that drugs delay deobstruction, and this was really seen clearly and expressed clearly by Defender Dean Alterman when he talked about kicking the can down the road. We think that we're being efficient right? We think we're being effective by managing the symptoms. We think we're being efficient because we followed the guidelines and we prescribed drugs. But in truth, we have allowed bladders to needlessly suffer, needlessly struggle. We have allowed bladders to be put at undue risk for bladder death and dysfunction, allowing them be, to be put in a position where when we do intervene, it is too late. They already have entered late stage BPH. And so, we would ask that it's time to rewrite the treatment landscape and we need to reassign and relegate medications to their proper category, which is really temporizing measures alongside catheters and temporary stents and lifestyle changes and modifiable factors and recognize they are temporizing measures that buy us time in the pre-treatment phase to accurately and precisely assess the mechanical problem. Let us re-engineer that assessment phase as we talked about. We now have more time to focus on it and recognize that we need to focus on bladder health counseling, a bladder health baseline where we can risk stratify bladders and do the proper evaluation surgically, looking at not just prostate size and shape, but also detrusor function. We need to recognize that we need to stop muzzling bladders and we affectionately love this Hashtag from Defender Luca Sindolo from the Italian Brigade of Defenders, stop narcotizing bladders. We need to recognize who we are. We are not just deobstructing surgeons, but we are preventative interventionalists. We will spend a little time on this slide, and I wish the listeners could see it. This is the face of bladder death and dysfunction. At the top left, there is a beautiful, healthy bladder. It's as smooth as a baby's bottom. It's pink full of hope and smooth and inviting and has so much to its future. And then somewhere along the lines, we allow that bladder to fall victim to the villainous constricting evils, evils of the prostate and allow for trabeculation, those hard ridges running through the bladder like railroads. And then to the point where it's permanently damaged and we see the pocketing, the cellules, the diverticuli. And we tip our hat to defender Amanda Chung from Australia, who did this great work from the AUA Chicago abstracts, looking at the electron microscopic level, looking at the bladder. On the far left, we see beautiful myocytes of the bladder, smoothly organized, lined up, well-defined. And then as BPH inflicts its damage, we see it looks like a bomb went off. The darkness, the shadows. The cells are torn apart, strewn all over the floor. The cells have gotten disfigured. We need to do better. And we see here the myohypertrophy, the elastin deposition, the increased in intracellular separation. This is not acceptable. And I stand before you because I must confess, I am guilty. I'm guilty of failing my patients. I'm guilty of failing their bladders. 
I'm guilty of being enthralled by the perceived benefit of prescription drugs. I am guilty of being a pill-pushing physician. And I paid the price. I, I think it has contributed to my own personal burnout. But my patients paid the price when they would show up in the emergency room in retention and have to go through the humiliating and torturous experience of having a catheter placed into their penis and run up to their bladder all the time knowing that they thought they were on combination, com complete maximal medical therapy, quote unquote, that I had prescribed. I had failed them. And to make amends, I started to work very hard to try and get my men to choose deobstruction, but to no avail. I ran into a wall. Too many men suffer from I'm fine syndrome. Too many when men have and wear their armor of masculinity, and I could not penetrate it. And I needed to go back and find a new approach. And it really comes down to we are not here to get them to choose deobstruction. We are here to guide them, to help them self-ignite, help to educate them, to lower their defenses, to take off the armor, engage in the shared decision-making process so they can choose for themselves the best course of action to help save their bladders and to prevent late-stage BPH. So with that, we need to re-envision what is our why. We need to re-examine what it means to be effective. And it is much more than just managing symptoms. It is the preservation of bladder health. That is our true north. That is our north star. That is our why. And we need to be their guides. We need to be their Gandalf to their Frodo. We need to be their Yoda to their Luke. And that way we can help them navigate the BPH care pathway and prevent late stage BPH. And it starts with better education. For all patients, we need to be efficient by providing bladder health counseling for all patients early on and upfront. We need to recognize and reinforce that there is only one bladder. It is so amazing, it is not even transplantable. So Mr. Smith, we need to take care of that. We need to respect that every man has a choice, but they need to understand that every choice has a consequence. They need to know what they should be bothered by. When we look up that word, it is that which we are disturbed about, upset about, worried about. They need to know this, and we need to research these types of pre-treatment concerns. They need to know what's at stake if the choice is made to not take definitive action to deobstruct their prostates, and the timing of obstruction is critical to save their bladders. That decision-making process in the pre-treatment phase is critical. So with that said, I came up with the five stages of the bladder health, but it had to first make sense academically. In the first stage, as we talked about, was benign prostatic obstruction, conveying that relationship between the bladder pump and the obstructed plumbing, and to convey the obstructive voiding symptoms, hesitancy, straining, decreased flow. And then stage two, detrusor overactivity, as it acknowledges the death and destruction and the negative impact on afferent and efferent nerves to the bladder and to convey the irritative voting symptoms, the urgency, the frequency, and the nocturia. And then stage three, urge urinary incontinence. We needed to recognize something that's not brought up on the International Prostate Symptom Score, the urge incontinence, such an embarrassing, humiliating, emasculating symptom. So many men, too many men are hiding in the shadows with this problem and limiting their lives. And then stage four, acute urinary retention. We needed a stage to reflect the risk of going to the emergency room and recognizing that this stage is a huge contributor, so many costs in our healthcare systems and to our patients and to our providers. Nobody wants that phone call at 2.30 in the morning about the guy who's in retention. And then stage five, to choose our underactivity. We needed to have something that represented and let us know that we have failed as defenders of the detrusor. We have not upheld our duty to protect and save bladders. But obviously that's for us as urologists, this academic language. We needed to be able to convey what our patients should be bothered by, what they should be disturbed about, upset about, worried about. And it starts with predicated on two things. One is that the prostate is a organ that's about the size of a golf ball, but in the shape of a mini donut. And Mr. Smith, your heart is a muscle. 
that pumps blood. Your bladder is a muscle that pumps urine through the prostate. And for that reason, Mr. Smith, there's five stages to your bladder health. The first stage is as you get older, that prostate gets bigger and the donut hole grows smaller. And as a result, things will slow down. In stage two, Mr. Smith, if we don't take care of it, that bladder begins to struggle. It has to work harder and harder to squeeze urine through that tightening donut hole. And as a result, it becomes like an overactive bladder with urgency, frequency, and getting up in the middle of the night as it begins to quiver. And then stage three, the bladder will then become like a rebellious child. It will act out without your permission, squeeze without your permission, and cause you to leak on yourself. And stage four, just like the heart can have a heart attack, the bladder can all of a sudden stop working and you show up in the emergency room because your bladder has two to four liters in there. You now need a catheter. And finally, heaven forbid, Mr. Smith, we do not want you to enter into stage five heart failure. Just like the heart can go into heart failure, the bladder can go into bladder failure where you may need a catheter for the rest of your life. And Mr. Smith, you and I are working here together because most men, as we all know, are actually coming to us often in stage two. And our goal today is to work together to prevent you, prevent patients from entering stage three, four, and five. And this is all outlined in the book, Five Stages of Bladder Health. Um, and also something people should look to is the Italian Brigade led by Defender Luca Sindolo just recently published a great overview on the five stages of bladder health, beautifully titled, When You Say Prostate, Don't Forget to Say Bladder. How true, how true. And we ask that it is time for us to grow the, uh, grow the, grow the tribe. If you're not a defender of the truser, the truser, please join. Come to the website because we have a lot of work to do together. Defender Charles Welliver recently gave us a report card, and there is evidence that we have been neglecting our duty. Looking at over 10,454,000 10, claims from Medicare and Optum. We see that we have failed to do the proper work in the pre-assessment in the assessment phase of doing bladder health counseling and bladder health baselines for all of our patients. Less than 5% received a prostate ultrasound. Less than 8% got a pressure flow study. Less than 10% had a cystoscopy. Less than 15% had a post-void residual done. We have to do better. And it has also shown evidence at the AOA. Chicago in 2023, that we are not doing a good enough job of preventing late-stage BPH. Defender Amy Crambeck in her whole lip series actually talked about and showed us that 80% of her patients who underwent HOLEP had evidence of urgent continence before having the procedure done. They were presenting in late stage, stage three, the rebellious child urge urinary incontinence. And then here on this slide that folks can, can't see, but on there, there are seven different studies from all over the country, USC, Cleveland Clinic, Baylor, Toronto, Miami, Mount Sinai, where up to 60% of these men were presenting with, and with a history of retention in stage four, the heart attack. We can do better. We must do better. We will do better. And so today, as John Lynn talked about, we need to try and strive for peak performance. And we return to those first principles about what is true and what is not true. Historically, in the 1980s, we started with a drug-first pathway. And then over the last 20 years, we have developed a better, newer path, new pathway, which still has drugs as first-line therapy, but now we have a whole constellation of better surgical technologies. And today, as we have talked, we are applying first principles to create an even newer pathway that's bladder-centric. And by so doing, we can put an end to the polypharmacy epidemic. We can make a difference in preventing late-stage BPH. Of note here on the slide, as a side comic and maybe for a discussion at a later point, we also believe that bladder health screening, just like colon cancer screening, should be performed starting at around the age of 50. And we believe this can accelerate the BPH care pathway even faster. And so today what we have done is we have grabbed a hold of an even higher level of levers for systems thinking. We are grabbing hold of system of level two, which is transforming the paradigm together. And as we grab a hold, we understand that to be effective is much more than just managing symptoms. It is 
to preserve bladder health. And to be efficient, it is not just to default men to a trial of medical therapy that delays deobstruction, that puts men and their bladders at risk for late stage BPH, but it is to be efficient is to provide bladder health counseling and to obtain a bladder health baseline for all patients. Bladder health counseling highlighting that the bladder is the one and only. It's not transplantable, it's too precious, we need to take better care of it. It is the five stages of bladder health, educating them, providing them a roadmap of where the decision to do nothing can lead them. We talked about things slow down, the overactive bladder, the rebellious child, the heart attack, heart failure. They need to know what's at stake. They need to know what they should be bothered by, worried about, disturbed about, upset about. And that is letting their bladders die. And as defenders of the detrusor, we should be disturbed by these things as well. And we should also make sure that every guy has a bladder health baseline. We need to make sure we define the window of curability for each bladder so that during the assessment phase, during the pretreatment phase, we can be more efficient with the decision-making process about the timing of deobstruction. And with this baseline, we can now risk stratify bladders so that we can do a timely intervention, timely deobstruction using a proper surgical evaluation that is not just about prostate size and shape, but also about detrusor function. And finally, we need to reassign we need to relegate medications to its proper category, which is temporizing measures. They are not therapeutic measures. And together, if we do that, we can then put an end to the polypharmacy epidemic. Because when we talked about what does it look like if we believe it to be true that our mission is to just manage symptoms and to be efficient is to prescribe drugs, we know what that looks like now. Two-thirds of men are on medications. Only two, three, four percent of men undergo surgical deobstruction. This is not okay. Too many bladders are left needlessly to struggle. Too many bladders are put at undue risk for death and dysfunction. And so together, we do need to make this change because too many men are suffering from the side effects of the polypharmacy epidemic. We all know this. We need to remember that medications are maximally invasive. They touch every single cell in the body, creating a host of systemic side effects, as we have learned from defender Steve Gange and Peter Walters. And finally, I ask, let us not stop trying to improve and reach even higher levels of peak performance, perhaps by looking at the potential positive impact of bladder health screening for all men starting at age 50. And so with that, we have our marching orders. And it is important that we continue to do what we do, defending the detrusor. We start and end from a place of gratitude to all of you who have been supporters of the Man vs. Prostate Crusade as we save bladders here and abroad, not just for the 40 million here, but also for the hundreds of millions abroad globally. We ask that you join the crusade at manversprostate.com. If it's something that you can get behind or find value from this, please consider donating. We are trying to be something similar to the Susan G. Komen for breast cancer awareness. We can do the same for bladder health awareness for men with BPH. As you subscribe, you'll get a free copy of the ebook, the 86-page ebook about the five stages of bladder health, as well as the copy of um, Defender Sindelo's views and insights on the five stages of bladder health. For those who want, there's a little bit of merch, but most importantly, engage in the dialogue in the conversation here on LinkedIn or academically. Come to the Society of BPD, Benign Prostate Disease Conference in Dallas, or like we like to think about BPD being bladder preservation defenders. And coming soon, the BPH360 podcast coming the spring equinox, hopefully. And as we begin to roll out an educational series for not just patients, for which we have 30 plus videos, as well as for providers, we also have about 30 to 40 videos there and hopefully figuring out the technology for that, as well as getting these types of report cards and flow charts and educational pamphlets into the hands of patients out there everywhere. Because at the end of the day, what we do is so important. We are transforming the lives of so many men. We are helping them become the best version of themselves, helping them live that best version, chemical-free and catheter-free. So let's go save more bladders. And Vic, thank you for your time. Thank you for everyone who's here on this podcast. And um, I'm open to answering any questions.
Wayne, that was great. I, I really admire your passion. I think that, uh, you know, it's something that we're, we're seeing all the time is that we're not treating soon enough. Um, I'm going to open up the question with my own first. Um, I, a lot of what you're speaking about were symptomatic, but do you have any objective data that you would uh, attach with when we should intervene? Flow rates, uh, post void residuals. What do we what do we look at? Because I've done a lot of your dynamics in my career, and you can't just go by age and say every you know sixty year old man probably needs to have prostate surgery because a lot of them have very normal studies. That is a large topic, and I think it's great to engage. And I'm excited because there's so many experts here on the podcast and listening today live with also Defender John Lynn. Remember, first of all, what we're talking about is establishing a bladder health baseline, correct, Vic? Right. And how do we do that effectively with objective data? But first, let's make sure we understand we need to do the bladder health counseling first because that will help patients self-ignite to get and obtain the bladder health baseline. This will be a great source of research and debate. So number one, we need to better clarify the utility of IPSS. International Prostate Symptom Score, does it accurately predict who's at risk? A very fantastic article that just came out recently, just a month ago in the Canadian Urology Journal, looks at that, comparing IPSS with the results from um, non-invasive pressure flow data. And I will submit that I don't think it's as sensitive and specific as we think it is. In fact, playfully, we call the IPSS the Imaginative Prostate Subjectivity Score. We've all had people with very low IPSS who, upon further investigation, are actually obstructed. They have BOO or bladder outlet obstruction on urodynamic findings. So there's one area. I personally believe that anyone with an IPSS of eight and above, we should be looking a closer look at. Number two, with the advent of technology, we have so much at our hands, hardware, software for looking at Euroflow. I think we've done a great disservice by saying that the flow rates between 10 and 15 are equivocal. If you look at the data historically, actually up to two thirds of guys may have bladder outlet obstruction in that equivocal range. I think we need to raise the bar and say, hey, look, guys under a flow rate of 12 to 15 need a more careful inspection. And then we need to look at PVR. My frustration with PVR is that it's just the numerator. As surgeons, we talk about retreatment rates for surgical procedures or complication rates. Well, in order to have those rates, we need a denominator. So let's say a guy has a PVR of 100. Well, that number means very different if his capacity is only 150. And that also means very differently if his capacity is 500. Two very different situations. I think we will see the growth of voiding efficiency or as defender Emmanuel Rubalota talks about in his paper last year, the post-void residual ratio. Looking at the numerator post-void residual over the denominator of the residual plus the voided volume. It's an easy thing to do. We just buy a bunch of plastic graduated cylinders and we get that extra data point. And now we have a denominator. And he looked at it saying the post-void residual greater than 20% means that bladder may be at risk for bladder outlet obstruction and detrusor underactivity. And then beyond that, we start to look at looking at the specifics of the bladder health I think there's going to be two ways, and it has to be something that can apply around the world. I think we need to look at qualitative data and quantitative data. We have learned, I think, two or three years ago that with the proper counseling in Canada, guys would come in on their first visit and get a cystoscopy. They were okay with it with the proper education about why we're doing it and why it's so important because we're trying to preserve bladder health. And you only have one of them, Mr. Smith. That's really important. And so we know it can be done and we now can buy into the fact that so many men starting at the age 50, we think about it, even though the guidelines are for 45 for colon cancer screening, but mentally, hey, you got to get your colonoscopy. Why don't you get scoped in the front as well? Let's make sure we look for qualitative data of the trabeculation, cellules, the diverticuli that your bladder may be suffering. Let's use the visual data. We are visual animals. We can do this. And then also complement that with quantitative data where it is available because obviously invasive and non-invasive pressure flow data is not available everywhere. I do think post-void residual ratio could be something that could be accessible throughout the world. 
So I think it's going to be a combination between qualitative and quantitative data. It's going to be a process of educating and re-examining all these tests, IPSS, post-void residual, Euroflow cutoffs, about what is um, indicative of the need for us to take a deeper dive into bladder health. So I know that's a long answer, Vic. Sorry. Obviously, it's something that I it's going to take a lot of work, and hopefully we're going to yeah. talk more about it with the Man vs. Prostate Manifesto, if I can kind of find the bandwidth to get that out next year. Yeah, no, that's great. I think it's, it's some some good information. For those of you that are out there that have any questions, please put them into the list. And we've got some stuff coming through. Fran said, thank you. You have any questions out there, uh, Andrea? Yep, we have a few questions here. One from Susie. How do you convince men to act on their bladder issues? Fantastic question. <laughs> I think that um, it's what we talked about today is the proper bladder health counseling. It's one that recognizing that, hey, what's at stake? Making sure we understand, like we talked about, hey, your bladders, there's only one of them. It's not transplantable. And I actually kind of invite them into this kind of secret. Hey, I, I don't think you knew this and not many men do, but we all talk about the prostate, but it's really about your bladder health. And you'll see their eyeballs kind of roll back or the eyebrows raise and they're like, huh, what? And then you can immediately engage. Yeah, you know, Mr. Smith, I'm actually more concerned about your bladder. What? Well, that's your invitation to talk about the five stages of bladder health. Yeah, actually, you know, there's only two main organs that you can, uh, that are not transplantable, the brain and the bladder. And Mr. Smith, I really am concerned because your IPSS is eight and above. And that tells me there's a problem here. Um, and so we can kind of go from there into the five stages of the bladder health to understand what's at stake because they now have bought into that, hey, I don't want to be that guy who waits and delays care that allows myself to get into late stage BPH. I don't want to be that guy that ends up in the emergency room needing a catheter or heaven forbid a catheter for life because I let my bladder die. They are now on board and they want to have that conversation. And just something I don't I want to rephrase your question, Susie, which is how do you convince men? I don't need to convince them. They convince themselves. Once again, I am not getting them to do anything. We are guiding them to make that decision for themselves, to take off their armor, lower their defenses, and engage in the process. So I hope that helped answer that question. Thank you. We have a second question that came in. This is from Glenda. I work supporting the I-10 procedure. Can you explain the strength of the bladder neck? This is a fascinating topic that could be a whole uh, hour long thing. Uh, the bladder neck is a very funny area. I think it's important that we understand that during the evaluation for BPH, where we're looking for the pathophysiology of bladder outlet obstruction, where the higher pressure seen in the bladder are due to an obstructing prostate growth due to benign prostatic hyperplasia, that is one category. But during that process, we need to be ever mindful of primary bladder neck obstruction. There were some great articles that just came out by defenders uh, Hans Kosh, uh, Luca Sindelo, um, and it was brought up on LinkedIn in our discussions there by defender uh, Michael Morville. Um, it's very important area and we need to understand how to use the bladder neck to our advantage. So when we do a surgical evaluation, we talked about prostate size, prostate shape, and detrusor function, detrusor function for obvious reasons. When we talk about prostate size, we often use that to understand which possible therapies a patient may be a candidate for. And then we talk about the bladder neck, um, which is an important part to consider in regards to the shape. As Dr. Defender John Lynn can attest to, a very obvious thing we talk about is a very prominent middle lobe sometimes so severe we call it a ball valve. That is an area that can dictate only certain types of therapies. If that's not present, we then look at the shape of the prostate. How high is that bladder neck, which will then define what type of therapies are available. And when we talk of therapies, we talk about the four main categories, most, ist, mist, and list. And um, in regards to ITIND, as you've been talking about, what's kind of cool about that technology is folks who may or may not know, there are three interwoven struts of nitinol, and they apply 2.2 pounds of pressures triradially at the 12 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and 7 o'clock positions at the bladder neck. And what we're learning is that it is kind of a great combination, um, as we've seen with Optilum now, looking at anterior commissurotomies. 
at the 12 o'clock position, if we can create an incision there, we can release and open up the prostatic fossa at the bladder neck. And as well as now, not only are we raising the roof of the prostate fossa, but we're able to drop the floor and allow the lateral walls to relax away from us by making those incisions at five and seven o'clock positions. So yes, the bladder neck is critical. It's important that all urologists understand the impact of the size, the shape, the location of the bladder neck. Is it high? Is it severely high? Is it tight? Is there a middle valve, a middle, uh, middle lobe that is so severe that it could be like a ball valve? Any thoughts on that, John Lynn there? I, I, I hope that answered your question there, Glenda. Yeah, I. This is. Uh, thank you for the uh, recognition of being one of the defenders of the chooser. First of all, when I talk to when I counsel patients, and it seems like I'm seeing BPH patients every single day. Forty million men in the U.S. with BPH alone. Uh, they're just not enough urologists. So it's it's time for the the patients, the guys, to understand that this is a. I, I tell my patients that this is the privilege of getting older having these lower urinary tract symptoms. The older you get, the larger the prostate, the, often the more, more, more difficult the urination. Medications are nothing but Band-Aids. That's what I tell my patients. These are Band-Aids. Are you okay putting a Band-Aid band on the problem or do you want to look for a cure? That's the way I present to them. Something for the urologists, the APPs, is that we are underutilizing cystoscopy. When you go to an ENT doctor, otolaryngologist, your nose and throat doctor, they're looking in your nose, they're looking in your mouth, they're looking in your ears. When you go to a gastroenterologist, they're recommending an upper endoscopy or colonoscopy or sigmoidoscopy. Why are urologists so reluctant to perform a cystoscopy? I just don't get it. Cystoscopy gives you so much information to the urologist and also the patient, for instance, does this, does this patient have a high riding bladder neck where ITIN will be great, right? Outpatient, quick procedure, no permanent implants. Or does this patient, like a patient that I saw yesterday, has a big ball valving median lobe that is growing intravesically that you know the medication's not going to work. So he ended up being recommended to have surgery and he ended up in urinary retention, meaning the bladder is unable to overcome the blockage. So... I ended up putting a catheter in him and then scheduling him for surgery. Cystoscopy, I can't stress that enough. Do not be afraid to perform cystoscopy. Throw away dogma. Throw away the way that you used to practice because I don't care about the prostate as much as I care about the bladder. When the bladder gives out, the trabeculations, the collagen buildup develops, you can't go back. Back to you. No, I, I totally agree, John. And I, I think that I want to emphasize two things. Seeing is believing. We are visual animals. Believe in cystoscopy. And as urologists, we need to believe in our own eyes. We've been looking at bladders forever. And if you ever forget, just remember what that first beautiful pediatric bladder looked like. That's where we all start out. And somehow we have been neglecting our duties as defenders of the detruser. And we need to, we can do, we must do better, and we will do better. And I would like to say that Defenders of Detruser, is con the concept is expanding and it goes all the way to the front desk, the nurses, the medical assistants who are doing the testing. You all need to understand why we are doing what we do, and it's really to save more bladders. So thank you. I think that's great insights, uh, John. Yeah. One of the things that we've done here on Euronurse is really kind of talk about dogma and how we've always done things the same way. And that's just not going to fly anymore. We really need to rethink things. The other thing I will say is, you know, with Euronurse that, um, you know, I kind of look at all the programming. We put out 65 programs. This is number 66. Um, we've covered every BPH treatment I think that there is now. And the BPH treatments are one of our number one viewed programs, which is great because I'm sure that, you know, there's more than just healthcare workers watching this. And I think that it's, that's really where the key is going to be is, is the, in the future is we, we need to educate the providers, obviously. We also need to educate the patients so that we get past that, you know, first level of, of uh, concern that patients just won't come in or they'll delay coming in to be seen. They need to realize this is important. So 
I, uh, I commend your defending the Zetrusser. And I, I got to approach the elephant in the room. What's with the hat? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it's not a fashion statement, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's only so much I can do here. For those of you out there, I don't have any hair. Um, it's actually, I'll be honest with you all. For those who don't, may or may not know me, uh, I'm actually a huge introvert. And it takes a lot of energy for me to do what we're doing here today. Uh, and when I need inspiration for doing what we do as defenders, I just look to, this reminds you how hard it is for patients to live with BPH. It ruins lives. Um, and this is one of my first patients. He was a 70 year old cowboy who came in with a hat very similar to this off of a ranch. Actually, his family brought him in. He was a man of very few words, totally grizzled and grunted more than he spoke with leathered hands and denim jeans. And he came off the wrench into my office and he had fallen victim to the polypharmacy epidemic. He had multiple urologists and we had fallen into the bad habit, right? Of prescribing drugs. Hey, Mr. Smith, you got a problem. Here's a drug. Still got a problem. Take another drug. Still got a problem. Take a higher dose. The guy was miserable. IPSS of, I think it was 30 plus. No sleep, no energy, urgency, frequency, incontinence. Absolutely miserable. No one had done an evaluation. And so I proceeded and determined that actually his prostate was 200 plus grams. And coming out of fellowship, there's only a couple months after that time starting. And I was, you know, hot to trot. Hey, I can save the world. I can help people. And so I rushed to find a partner to do an open, simple prostatectomy at that time, rushed to get him on the schedule, only to find out from the schedules that the family had called in. When faced with the decision of either continuing to live his miserable life of urgency, frequency, suprapubic discomfort, incontinence, versus the option of taking the risk of general of, of a huge operation with huge morbidity risk of an open, simple prostatectomy. He chose his preferred path, something he could control. And he uh, took his gun and he shot and killed himself. Wow. And so it reminds me that remember what we talk about, somehow we have minimized BPH for far too long for men. And I get it. We as men wear that armor of masculinity and we suffer from I'm fine syndrome when we're really not fine. We're fearful. We're fearful of what people are going to do to us if we say we're not fine. And it just reminds me that BPH ruins lives and it can even end lives. And so that's kind of why I wear this hat. Uh, uh, BP, uh, what a great story. Gosh, Wayne, BPH kills actually. So a lot of patients will come in and, and they have horrible nocturia. They have to get up five, six times a night. I always tell the, I tell the guy, how do you even sleep? More importantly, how do you function the next day? Getting up at night is not such a benign situation for a lot of older men with enlarged prostate. Typically, they're older men. You're stumbling around in the middle of the night and you trip and fall. That trip and fall may not kill the patient, but that trip to the hospital the urinary difficulties, the bladder infections, that and all the other complications associated with that hip fracture or whatever it may be, that's probably what kills the patient. So BPH, even though, ah, just the bladder, just the prostate, just urination problem, it literally kills people. Well, actually, I think that's a great segue. If one looks at the Akurla study from, I think, January of last year from Finland, retrospectively, there is an increased mortality association with lower urinary tract symptoms. In fact, urge urinary incontinence has a hazard ratio of 2.2 associated with increased mortality. And we know that men who present with catheters and catheter-associated UTIs or hospitalizations with retention are at increased risk or mortality. And just most recently, I think just the last issue potentially of Journal of Urology, we can see that improving lower urinary tract symptoms may minimize or decrease mortality. So yes, BPH kills. We need to increase awareness of that. And that's why all of you are defenders of the truser. So let's go save more bladders. Yeah, it is really great. Um, uh, I We could go on forever, I think, on this one. It's, it's a great subject and really can't give it all of its uh, time that it needs. But we do keep the show to a one-hour program. Uh, Wayne, I really appreciate your, your talk. And hopefully we'll get you back to join us another time in the future to Kind of give us updates on where we're at on BPH and defending that to true, sir. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everybody. It's been fun. Yeah. We'll do it again.
So a little uh, plug for next week's program is going to be peeking inside the world of urinalysis. Urinalysis, the often overlooked yet invaluable tool in the field of medical diagnostics. It provides a window into the intricate inner workings of the human body. This unassuming bodily fluid serves as a non-invasive gateway to our physiological secrets. Its transparency, accessibility, and simplicity have made urinalysis an essential part of routine medical examinations. Join Euronurse as we go peeking into the world of urinalysis on euronurse.com. All right. Well, hopefully everybody will join us next week for that. And with that, we'll have everybody have a nice weekend and we'll talk to the rest of you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.